There are a few things in life that hold our attention quite like a promise that hasn't been fulfilled. I can still remember, and, and I've seen it recently, I can remember from my own childhood, the, the anguish uh, on the face of a child, maybe at, at the seaside or pointing over at the ice cream van, saying, but Dad, you promised. And until you have the ice cream, you're in agony. Think of the anticipation of the bride-to-be as she shows her engagement ring. The ring's great, and being engaged is great, but it's the promise of marriage and a shared life that, that really excites her. Think of the first-time buyer who's had their offer accepted. The solicitor is, is working just to finalize things. The promise of a new home, a new place to live. But until they get the key, the home's not just quite their own. The promise is not yet fulfilled. Folks, that's where we are in our whiz through the Bible, our seven-week tour of God's Word. We, we were thinking uh, a lot these last weeks about promises that God has made to His people and, and how they're not just quite yet fulfilled. Two weeks ago when we last thought about this stuff, we thought about the prophets. And you'll remember their great role was to come to God's people, to speak to them about where they'd gone wrong, and to remind them of God's promises not yet kept. They reminded God's people, yes, God is going to keep His promises. As we come to the end of the Old Testament, those promises are still unkept. It's like the child waiting for the ice cream, or those waiting to be married, or those waiting for their home. It's that kind of anticipation. There's all those centuries of expectation. There's the tension of God's promises not yet kept. That's how the Old Testament ends. And with that in mind, it's quite astonishing to turn the page and to begin to read the New Testament. This morning we read from the opening chapter of Mark's Gospel, but the opening chapter of Matthew's Gospel, the very first verse, Matthew introduces the family tree of Jesus Christ, and he does, does it like this. He calls it a record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David and the son of Abraham. Did you get that? Jesus Christ is the son of David and the son of Abraham. Very quickly, for those of us who have been here these last few weeks, that should be sending bells ringing. The son of Abraham. Matthew's saying that Jesus Christ is that descendant of Abraham through whom all God's promises to Abraham are going to be fulfilled. Do you remember what God said to Abraham? I will make you a great nation, and all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. But Jesus, whom he's writing about, is also the son of David. He's the one through whom God's promises to David are going to be fulfilled. God had promised David in 2 Samuel, I'll raise up from your offspring one, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Even before Matthew tells us anything about Jesus being born in a stable in Bethlehem, he says, watch this baby. This baby is the one through whom all the promises of the Old Testament 
are going to be fulfilled. Those are quite astonishing claims to make for a peasant child born in a Judean backwater in Bethlehem. But as soon as Jesus, this time now as a grown man, 30 years later, as soon as he begins his public ministry, Jesus confirms everything that Matthew's claimed for him. In Matthew 4, 17, we find the first words of Jesus' public preaching ministry. And if you've been here the last few weeks, this, this, will, this will be exciting. What does Jesus say? What are the first words that Matthew records Jesus to preach? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God is near. The whole of the Old Testament has been building up to this, the arrival of the kingdom of God. If you turn to Mark's gospel, the passage that we have just read this morning, in Mark chapter 1, verse 15, he says the same thing. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. Folks, that's the message that was right at the center of all of Jesus' preaching the arrival of the kingdom of God through him. Now, that's, that's very exciting for those of us who have been here these last weeks and have seen how the, the whole of the Old Testament is all about the building and building and building of these promises of the kingdom of God. From this point on, and this is something, this is a slightly technical point, but I do want to make it and then I'll, I'll move on. At this point on, there is no encouragement in the New Testament to look at any promise in the Old Testament and to be expected to be fulfilled any other way than through Jesus Christ. I know, I know some Christian people, for example, who are waiting for the state of Israel to be reconvened as a glorious state of God's people. They're waiting for the rebuilding of the temple because there are Old Testament promises to that effect. Friends, the New Testament never encourages us to look for either of those two things or anything like them. All of God's promises in the Old Testament are focusing in on Jesus. Now that sounds like a big claim to make. We'll come to that in just a moment. Let me explain to you, Jesus is going to fulfill God's promises about God's people, about God's place, and about God's blessing and rule. But let me quickly give you an idea to help you think about how that's going to happen. Imagine a century ago, a father says to his son, son, when you reach 21 years old, I'm going to give you a horse. By which he means, I'm going to give you a mode of transport, something to get round on. Between the time that promise is made and the, the young son reaching 21 years old, the motor car is invented. Whenever the son reaches 21, the dad gives him a motor car. Now, the promise has been fulfilled, but not literally. It wouldn't have made any sense for either the dad or the son to be speaking about and promising a motor car in a time when they just couldn't think in those categories. Neither of them could. But the promise was fulfilled. In fact, it was surpassed. In a way, that's a, a slightly 
dodgy analogy maybe, but it might help you to understand what's happening. God's promises in the Old Testament are all about concrete realities that the people then could understand. They're about having a state and a nation of your own. They're about being in a land of your own, and they're about having a king and living under his blessing. God is going to keep every one of those promises, but he's going to do it in a different way. He's going to fulfill them, not entirely literally, but by focusing on Jesus Christ. And again, he's not only going to keep those promises, he's going to surpass them massively. Let's look then one by one at these promises in turn and see how Jesus actually fulfills them. How does Jesus fulfill the people promise? Well, the biblical writers are very clear about this, that Jesus is the new Israel. Uh, You'll have to bear with me for a second while I explain this. Do you remember shortly after Jesus was born, his, his mom and dad, Mary and Joseph, took him to Egypt Whenever he was coming back from Egypt, Matthew, the gospel writer, talks about that event, and he talks about it using an Old Testament prophecy. So was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt I have called my son. Now that Old Testament prophecy, when it was first written, had nothing to do with Jesus Christ. It was talking about the time when God had called his people out of Egypt. What Matthew's doing here is he's saying, keep an eye on Jesus, because he is the new Israel. Now, let me build this up for you. If you remember what happened to God's people as they were brought out of Egypt, do you remember they spent 40 years in the desert, going through trials and temptation, being tested to see whether they were indeed going to be faithful, the people of God? Well, Jesus before he begins his public ministry, goes also into the desert. Not for 40 years, but for 40 days. And Jesus goes through trials and temptations to establish, is he going to be faithful to God? In a sense, Jesus again is mirroring Israel. But the thing that's fantastic about Jesus is that he doesn't fail where Israel did. He passes the test He comes through with flying colors. He becomes the new and the true Israel. Maybe I haven't convinced you yet. Just one more strand to this. Whenever Jesus begins his public ministry and he calls people to join him, how many does he call? Twelve disciples. He calls twelve people to come and to be with him. Why twelve? because 12 was the most significant number in Israel when they thought about themselves as the people of God. There were 12 tribes. What Jesus is saying is, I have come to call an entirely new people into being. Those who follow me, my disciples, are from now on the people of God. Not ethnic Israel, not the physical descendants of Abraham, but those who, like Abraham, trusted God, this time and from now on, through Jesus Christ. Friends, Jesus Christ fulfills all of the people promises of the Old Testament. 
He also fulfills, do you remember all those promises about God's people in God's place? Jesus fulfills all of those. Very quickly, God's people began in God's place, Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. God restored his presence to them and once more made Canaan God's place whenever he lived, first of all, among his people in the tabernacle tent and then in the temple. The astonishing thing is that Jesus arrives on the scene and he says, I am the new temple. He says, from now on, you don't need a tent, you don't need a building in Jerusalem because I am the temple. I'm the only place that people can meet with the true and the living God. Next time you read the Gospels, keep your eye on this, okay? Next time you read any passage where Jesus goes to the temple, keep your eye on what he says about himself and particularly in relation to the temple. Let me give you a couple of examples. One day, Jesus went to the temple, and you might remember this story. It's the day when he, he kicked over the tables of the money changers and chased them out of the temple. And then he said something that really was controversial. He said, destroy this temple and I'll raise it again in three days. Folks, that's like a contractor going down to City Hall in Belfast after it's been blown up entirely in a bomb. And when he puts in his, his offer for the work, he says, yes, it's going to cost 150 million pounds and I'll have it finished on Friday in three days' time. That's what Jesus was saying. And that's what the people thought they heard him saying. Obviously, they thought he was crazy. Jesus wasn't talking about the physical temple. In John's gospel, John goes on to tell us that the temple of which he had spoken was his body. Does that make a bit more sense? Destroy this temple, and in three days, it'll be back up. He's talking about his own death and resurrection. Friends, Jesus is saying, I am the temple. I'm the place where you meet God. There is no other place any longer. So Jesus is God's people. In Jesus, we have the place where we meet with God. Finally, and the third promise how is Jesus going to keep the promise that God's people will live under his blessing and his rule? Well, first of all, Jesus has made a way that it's possible for you and I to enter back into our relationship with God. Do you remember we talked about the, the promised new covenant that the prophets talked about? Whenever Jesus was in the upper room with his disciples and was handing out the wine the wine that we remember every time we celebrate communion. He said, this is the blood of the new covenant shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus was saying simply this, because I'm going to go tomorrow and die on a cross outside of Jerusalem, you can be back with God. There's a new covenant, a new way for you failing and sinful people to be in the presence of the holy God. 
Friends, Jesus has won our forgiveness by his death on the cross. If God's people are going to come under God's blessing and rule, do you remember we said they would need God's king? They would need the one who would rule them and lead them in God's place. And that's exactly who Jesus Christ was. Jesus never looked like a king when he was on earth. Don't forget, he was born in a, in a stable. He was born to a peasant family. He never had any money to his name, and he never had any physical, any political, I should say, power. Jesus didn't look like a king. But if you'd been among the crowd, if you'd seen Jesus walking on water, healing the sick, raising people from the dead, you'd have realized he's a king all right. He's a king like no other. He's the king of the whole of the universe, the whole of the natural order and the supernatural. Friends, Jesus has come, and he's come as the new king. Whenever God's people accept the rule of the new king, they're going to know God's blessing. I just love this verse where Jesus looks at a bedraggled and a stressed out and a disillusioned crowd of people around him. And he says to me, come, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He's talking to the people who were fed up with the religion of their day, the dead religion he was, fed, he was talking to people who were, as I say, disillusioned and lost, people whose lives were, were weary. And he says, come to me. Take my yoke on you. My burden's easy. My burden's light. Whenever we come to Jesus, we once more live under the blessing of God. Jesus, God's king, brings God's blessing and God's rule. Friends, few things focus our attention like promises left unkept. The great news of the gospel is that God has kept all the promises that he's made to us. All those Old Testament promises about the kingdom of God, they have all been fulfilled and they're all complete in Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul sums it up beautifully. He says, no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. No matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. Friends, I've gone to great lengths this morning to show you that Jesus Christ is right at the center of all that God has promised to do for us. But I want to spend the last two minutes this morning just stressing that this is no academic exercise. What I've been doing here is trying to show you that God is at, that, that Jesus is at the center of God's plans for the world. Folks, Jesus is the center of the universe. Our lives only make sense if He is at the center of our lives. If Jesus isn't at the center of your life this morning, you're living out of step with the way this world is supposed to be. 
Let's finish this morning by returning very briefly to that theme sentence that both the gospel writers presented at the start of Jesus' preaching. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. We've talked enough about the kingdom of God this morning. Very, very quickly, what does Jesus mean when he says repent and believe the good news? I think you're going to be surprised by this because I think the word repent has been corrupted massively from what Jesus meant by it. Most people, when they hear the word repent, they think, stop doing bad things. Stop drinking, stop smoking, stop saying bad words, and become a nice person. Repent. That's not what Jesus meant. Let me use very quickly one last illustration to tell you why I believe that. Josephus was a Jewish historian and an officer in the Roman army shortly after Jesus died. In AD 66, he took on a a massively dangerous mission. He, He mounted his horse and he rode to Galilee to go and meet the paramilitaries there who were preparing to use violence to overthrow the Roman occupation of Israel. It was a massive risk he was taking, much like any of our political leaders today who gets on the wrong side of one of our paramilitaries here in Ulster. He knew that these men had no chance. He knew that there was no way that they could overthrow Roman might. If they did try, it would just be a suicide mission. So at a great risk to his own life, he set off to go and confront these men, these dangerous and ruthless men. As he approached the leader of these rebels, He confronted him, and he asked this leader to give up his own agenda and to trust him. And the actual words that he used are recorded for us in Josephus' autobiography. These are the words he used in that context. He said, repent and believe in me. Whenever Jesus spoke to the people of his day and said, repent, He wasn't thinking about drinking and smoking and bad words. What Jesus meant was the same as Josephus means here. He says, he means start living your life differently. Change the basis of your entire life and reorient your life towards me. I am the center of the universe. Make me the center of your life. That's what Jesus meant when he called people to repent and to believe. Do you know what he said? Repent and believe the good news. Folks, that is good news. Jesus Christ, who loves you enough to go to a cross and die for you, is at the very hub of this universe. And he calls you to follow him. He says, leave leave your weary life, your meaningless existence. Come and follow me. Repent and believe 
the good news. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you that this whole world was created by him. Thank you that it's all for his glory. Lord, thank you for your word which helps us to see that. Lord, help us this morning, each one of us, to repent, to believe, and to see what wonderful news this is. Lord, we want to live the new life of Jesus Christ. Lord, we want to live in step with the way this world really is. Lord, would you come move us by your Spirit. Prompt us, each one, to open our lives to Jesus Christ. Amen.